You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast, a collaborative platform where we share ideas and inspiration from some of the most successful tech leaders within the industry. I'm Lockie, a principal recruitment consultant here at Evolution, and I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'll be your host. Uh, Binchy, you are the first on my screen, uh, so I'll get you to introduce yourself and then we'll work around as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Lockie. My name is Binchi. I worked at Twilio as the Cloud Information Security Architect Lead in Asia Pacific and Japan. I work with businesses of all sizes to ensure that as they unleash the potential of cloud, things don't go sidetrack in the areas of compliance and privacy. And then Tim. Hey, thanks. Uh, so Tim Hope, so I'm the CTO of Versin. So um, about like Versin is probably um, is really like a consulting, born in the cloud consulting company. We help customers adopt cloud and then really help them accelerate it. And I guess part of what I'm passionate about is linked to what Versin does is how to adopt cloud in the right way, how to use modern principles and practices, um, but really focused on supporting the enterprises. So doing it in complex environments to make sure they can get that kind of startup outcome uh, for enterprise customers. And then Karthik. Hey, I'm Karthik Padmanabhan. I'm playing the role of head of architecture and hit the platform engineering team at PageUp. PageUp is a talent management product company. So part of my role is to ensure that our ability to put uh, the right practices in software development and put uh, the product quickly in front of our customer is a key role of a key responsibility of my role. In addition to that, actually also ensuring that the, the best practices that we follow around security are ingrained into our architecture and best practices as well. So that's that's what I do. And and then Ben as well. Yeah, thanks, mate. So uh, my name is Ben. I'm the director of DevOps Cloud and Automation at Servian. Uh, similar to Tim, we are, we we're a consultancy that works with helping organisations uh, adopt cloud. We've got a history in data as well, but um, where I really focus on helping organisations adopt cloud and best practices, I guess, in consuming cloud and working working in their environment. Um, personally, you know, I'm really passionate about engineering culture, uh, and I have a real keen interest in helping um, businesses solve their problems through aligning people, process, and technology. Yeah, awesome. And then we'll jump into the topics of the discussion for today. Uh, Minchi, your question itself will be, how do you start to practice application security and continuous compliance in your digital project? And then how to secure one's workload or data without slowing things down? Yeah, absolutely, Loki. And uh, look, to start with, I think when we talk about information security, cybersecurity in the cloud context, many people will think, okay, security guys are main black. And they are serious. They try to either kill your project or slow things down. But let's put another lens. Let's say, okay, these guys are actually helping us. Uh, no matter if you know these guys are your in-house security experts or they could be external consultants. Uh, the way I see it is security people, they actually almost like your, uh, your brake of a fast moving vehicle. So you have to, if something happens, you, you really need, need to find a way to slow things down or you need to contain whatever incident which may happen. So coming back to your question, I think application security is, is paramount because traditionally the security people, they look at your infrastructure and they are working in the reactive mode. That means if something happened, they will detect it and they'll try to contain it. But nowadays with modern modern application, especially, you know, serverless and containerized application running on the cloud, 
so many uh, vulnerabilities. I would say that the source of vulnerabilities can be embedded in your open source library, can be embedded in your operating system, can be embedded in any uh, runtime. So it can be everywhere. That means it might be too late uh, to implement a traditional security control and say, okay, let's detect an attack. That's probably way too late. The way I would I would I would suggest um, all developers and engineers and IT professionals to look into this is, is basically turn all developer jobs into a security job. That means security is probably the responsibility of all developers. It's no longer the, the responsibility of a security team. By doing that, you have to automate things and you have to measure and cut. That means when you write up even a line of code, you need to understand the potential implication in relation to security. And when you, uh, you are ready to check in a segment of code, you do peer review, you, do, you approve a pull request in a Git branch, you need to put your security lens on it, even if your main job is not security engineer. Um, of course, security is a very specialized area and you may not have the right expertise from time to time. And then that's why you need an application security engineer in your ideally in, in, in your in your scrum in your um, two pizza team or whatever that is so you can constantly consult uh, with that expert and say hey if I really don't understand the, the risk of this piece of code can you explain to me and continuous compliance is as opposed to continuous integration and continuous deployment which has been well received in the DevOps community is that now uh, how to measure at any given time your application, your workload, your data is compliant is, is not like big spreadsheet to do that point in time checks. You must automate that by writing code. You need to codify the process of checking your compliance. So when you put these two things, AppSec, continuous compliance into your DevOps pipeline, into your day-to-day -day development practice, you actually significantly reduce the risks. And by doing that, I think you can actually uh, speed things up instead of slowing things down. Yeah, and then we also discuss obviously shifting away from a traditional security team to instilling security practices within the most you know everyday mundane developers. I know everyone here is in charge of building teams, has worked in large consulting firms as well. How do you actually instill that practice within the organization to have you know, everyday developers actually interested in security to erase you know, the traditional security teams itself, or not really erase them, but actually aid and boost that side of the organization? So I think it's like a really interesting question because it's like a massive aspect of scale here. So how do you like um, enable the security teams through training and awareness? And how do you um, how do you actually embed it into the team so you get this kind of efficient way of scaling? So creating security awareness, creating a culture of security first and making sure security is um, basically like a, a critical component of the development lifecycle. I think a lot of pressure that application teams come on is always to deliver business functions. So you need to work with the business to actually say, we need to prioritize the security components. And that you know, setting that mandate from the business up, for, up front lets you kind of drive the culture into the teams to say, well, security is important and starting to then educate, train, 
and um, provide tools and different options so people can kind of learn the, the ways that they want to learn. Is it like a, a training course? Is it like a, a hackathon or some kind of blue green event? And then giving these kind of options into the teams. I think, you know, I think the, the training and uh, the training and development of staff is a really important one. But on that as well, I think baking in your security requirements from day one and compliance requirements from day one is a really important part of it as well, right? So when you when the developers or engineers pick up a card you want to make sure that they've got uh the various uh the teams have been thinking around these security elements uh from day one and then they've designed and built stuff with this in mind right so it's making sure that they have really good clarity on the exact requirements and the security requirements so they're at the forefront of their mind and they're thinking about it as they're building the design like engineers when they pick up a card they'll build what's on the card and it's really important to make sure you've you've bake that in from the absolute get-go, right? So you want to make sure that your teams uh, can move forward and build the application with these requirements in mind and to have the right level of clarity um, to effectively build those security requirements in for in from day one. I think that's important, right? And if you've then got, if you've got teams that aren't trained on security or don't have the right idea of security, making sure that security is involved in these processes really early on so that they can go, cool, well, is there a gap here? Do we actually need to enable you as a team to, is there something we need to build so you can consume it so that can be baked in as well? Right? And I think these are important aspects that need to be considered um, as you build as you build this stuff out. Yeah, um, just just to add to that, right? So generally, when, when, when we look at it, we look at it as three different aspects of it. The first aspect, of course, we all touched about it, essentially embedding knowledge within the team. So that's through broad back sessions or through training courses through which you would actually enable your developers to be up to speed with some of the basic security practices and awareness around it. The second part, we think about it as collaboration, essentially where whether it is uh, per story, like what Ben was talking about, whether you embed the acceptance criteria around it or you make the security tip a, a team uh, collaborate with your technical lead to ensure the guardrails of a solution are put in place in terms of security. That's the second part of it, collaboration. And the third part of it we see as automation or putting some guardrails in place essentially, right? So that the mistakes don't get all the way to the production, either, either through the CI process or whether you're missing your, in your cloud deployment to avoid some of those IAM rules to actually spill away into the, the production environment or whether it is about an authentication credential stored in the wrong way in your production environment, right? So so, so the third one primarily is about automation and process. So that's essentially the three aspects uh, through which we look into it. Yeah, awesome. And I, I guess in terms of uh, new age developers as well, I know that in the past everything was quite well segregated and there was a security team and there was an application team and there was a cloud team as well. Now that we're trying to collaborate the three together, um, or those three pillars itself, is it a lot easier these days that people are coming straight out of university with an interest in security or is it a lot harder to actually convince you know, typical developers that have worked for 30, 40 years to actually collaborate with younger individuals as well on security? Is that a challenge as well? Uh, I'll probably take that one, Loki. You're on the money. Um, so I, I was teaching introduction to software engineering for the past semester in, at the University of Sydney. And I, I would say, for for those students who actually plan for are planning for an IT career, they may not really understand uh, how important security is. That's why education is so such important, so important aspect. And I would say it's not just a start; it's going to be lifelong learning. Uh, I actually embedded the OWASP top ten uh, threats in relation to application 
into this software engineering course, which is kind of uncommon because usually software engineering, you, you talk about the methodology of how to build a software, how to verify software, how to release a software, but a kind of getting this one embedded really, really early on uh, in those uh, educational course, I think that's that's one uh, aspect I would definitely stress out. And the second, the second one is uh, essentially it, it, it's an ongoing uh, education. I would say once you're getting in, in landing on a job, uh, you would need to look at what kind of credentials you may need to get over the uh, next couple of years. And I would say security is is definitely uh, one of the areas you have to consider. And even if you're not pursuing a cybersecurity um, career path, and you know as a as a developer, as a tester, most likely nowadays you if you work on non-functional test, security tests will be part of it. And even if you're running performance tests, there's always a security implication. You know, how to differentiate a performance test uh, versus a DDoS test. So uh, yeah, that, that's, that's really spot on. Yeah, so I, I agree with Binky on that. Um, making it foundational as part of learning is a key aspect of it. But let's be honest, right? So when you have graduates coming out of university and trying to see how they could get into the software development as a career, well, there are several things that they get excited about, right? So one day they're going to be excited about front end, the second day they're going to be excited about test driven development, the third day they're going to be excited about some other technology, right? Containerization, cloud, right? So they have so many things to be excited about. So, so from time to time, their interest around security kind of varies, or security as a primary thing varies. Um, so, so, well, I mean, as much as we would like to think that security has a foundational learning, well, unless it is embedded properly through the education system, uh, there is a risk to a level extent a responsibility for the organizations to ensure that the foundational learning is embedded as they are onboarding into the organization, as they are onboarding into starting to write the pieces of code and actually putting them into production. So thought I'll just make that as a point. You know, I actually couldn't agree with that point more. And I really think as well, there is a element of you know, when we talk about DevOps, one of the key pillars is transformational leadership and leadership driving from the top down that, hey, this is actually everyone's responsibility. It's not just the security team's responsibility. Um, I've worked with a lot of large organizations where it is that, that SecOps team is, they're just a blocker or they're just, they're, just, they're just a pain to work with. And I think it's changing that narrative from the top down going, well, everyone's job here is to enable the business and security, your job's not to block. It's actually to enable quick flow and getting our ideas through to production very quickly and making that very clear from the get-go. I think that's something that can sometimes be missed, especially in larger traditional enterprises as well. Uh, something I see a lot of that I think the ones that do it well are the ones where that narrative has changed and it's driven from the top down going, well, your job's not to stop and not to block because it doesn't meet the security controls. It's to enable them and make sure that they can meet the security controls without stopping them from doing what the delivery teams need to do. Mm. I could really resonate with that because we see security, is, especially with cloud, is really seen as an enabler. Like it's a way for businesses to move faster. Like so, the days of kind of like the clipboard security people coming through, checking things off, uh, you know, blocking, um, diffusing conversations is, is really changed. I think you go back to your kind of point before is like, is this changing the people coming into the industry? I think. A career in security now is a much more dynamic career. So it's a career that's much closer to the application teams. It has a lot of new technologies coming through. It's trying to move faster. So you know, someone who started their security career a while ago may have really gone into like risk and compliance. 
and be much more on that side of thing where today they have a much better path to stay closer to the software engineering, integrate to the engineering teams. And then we kind of mentioned before, you know, there's a general experience of security through all kind of application teams. And then what you find is you still need to develop that really depth of security and capability around specific pieces. So the people who really enjoy security and now have the ability to go very deep into it. And there's lots of different aspects of security now from the runtime into the application space, you know, cloud security. So it's a much more dynamic environment. I think that's leading to a lot of people interested in pursuing further careers in security. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice. And then we'll uh, just jump absolutely. in. Um, I'll just sorry, Loki, I, I, no I have a final point to add. And and then we talked a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, cross-training for developers to, to, to understand security. And uh, I would say at the same time, just as uh, all of you guys mentioned, the, the sec traditionally security guys are living in the silo, right? And I think it's there's always another bit, how we can get the security professionals cross-trained onto cloud DevOps, modern application development, so they know what we're doing. Um, so, and the other, the other lens on that is, okay, there's always a business impact assessment need to happen because you can always, I would say there's endless security control you can put in place, but at the end of the day, you're running a business. There's always a dollar figure you have to consider. Uh, is that worth, is, is, that, is there a return of investment? Uh, you know, what is the, the source of that requirement? Is that compliance or does somebody make that up? Is that perception or it's a real risk? You know, threat modeling needs to be developed before you walk into any security requirement added to your card. Sorry, Lucky, go on. No problems. I was just going to say, we'll jump into the second question, uh, which was Tim's, which mentions my favorite thing in the world, which is sleep. Um, how does a security team uh, have confidence, um, in essence, sleep at night uh, with DevSecOps processes running in enterprise? And how do they report to the CEO or the board on the security position? <laughs> um, I guess that is quite a big question, but when we saw the adoption of cloud, I think we saw the what kind of happened is the security team said that that's fine, that that cloud thing is kind of on the side, and there was a lot of adoption of open source, so kind of point solutions. And a couple of years ago in the industry, you really start to see CISOs and security teams suddenly take it very seriously. I think there was a lot of boards and CEOs is like, well, this you know this cloud or this you know kind of DevOps processes that's going on, it's now hitting critical mass and it's starting to impact risk to the business. We're also seeing you know, the industry, you know, the, our customers are constantly under attack. The, the threat process are changing, uh, the ability to um, things to be compromised is far faster. I think the response time of putting a SSH key in GitHub is going to be compromised. I think it's like you know, less than a second. And so the, the, these attacks are really real. Um, so for the CISOs and for the security teams, they, they have a really strong part to play and they need to know how do they how do they know what's going on? How do they know their landscape? And how do they actually impact change? There's nothing worse than knowing that there's uh, something wrong, but not being able to integrate into the development cycles to fix it uh, because they've implemented DevOps and they, they don't have that kind of break glass account or the ability to tap in the way they used to. Um, so we kind of see it a couple of different ways and it, it's, it's, it's littered across the DevOps processes. So it's into the application teams around putting you know, the right security controls before they check the code in. Um, then it's through the pipelines and making sure you, you're scanning the code into the different test environments. You're using the same policies through your different control plays. And then it really is looking at and monitoring what's happening in production and having that strong cycle back into the development team so you can respond quickly. And that might be through you know, RAS control where they change it on the fly, or it might be you know, actually going back to the developer teams to put the permanent fix. 
So it needs to have this um this real end-to-end pipeline. And that's where you see, you know, I think we mentioned it before, your DevOps teams adopting security, but security teams adopting DevOps processes as well, so they can rapidly respond. Um, I think and for I think from a security team, it really comes down to like you know building those guardrails through the pipeline and then checking and trusting what actually what's going on in production. And um, the way it kind of gets built out is really iteratively. So I think when you know, businesses try to build out a very, very complex DevOps process, it's very hard. So they need to kind of go slowly, but keep iterating on it, keep the constant investment. And over time, they get a really strong posture that they can go to the confidence and they can sleep and say, well, if something happens, I know it's going to happen. And I've got my collaboration. I've got my trust with my security teams, my business stakeholders that I can actually implement and fix the change and respond to threats as they come through. Yeah, if I were to take a shot at that question, right? So, so uh, it might, might be a slightly controversial answer. So, I would make it a shared accountability with the developers. I reckon that's probably something that um, that I think traditional enterprises kind of under under um, evaluate. So, I think the more the, the the development teams and the teams that are responsible for the systems that are in production take a shared accountability to security. But the accountability in itself puts some practices and will in place, kind of said that's, um, so yeah, I thought I'll just highlight that point. So the shared accountability is an important aspect of, of, the, of, the, of, a, of a happy security team because well, without that, uh, if they take everything on themselves of which they don't understand, it puts a big risk on the business as well as in terms of uh, their own health. All right, we'll move on to the next question. So Karthik, the question that you brought as well was uh, security baselining. So shifting left for security, um, obviously how to do this and what are the benefits of this as well? Yeah, well, so in, in PageUp, we had an opportunity to reset some time ago. Um, so um, as part of putting together an AWS multi-account strategy in PageUp, what we did is we uh, established uh, the, the landing zone and a, a continuous, uh, continuous deployment for uh, for our baselining. So the, when I say the baselining, this is essentially a state machine, a combination of state machines that actually run in the production environment in the master account and deploy whole set of stack across all our AWS accounts. So as part of the stacks that it is deploying, it actually includes uh, some of the security guardrails as well as some of the architectural guardrails, right? So for example, let's say security guardrails, it talks about what would be the password uh, strength around uh, or the password that go into our AWS account. It could be talking about um, what are the egress in, uh, VPCs that are actually have egress uh, configured, right? and and we actually ensure that there are service control policies applied on all of that to actually ensure that nobody could tamper that information. So that's part of the, the deployment that happens to every account. And that from an architectural perspective, we kind of limit a few services, and we could allow allow, allow a few services to be deployed. Like for example, the sensible default that I suggest for my team is to ensure that they run containers in Fargate rather than actually running an ECS cluster for that. So we ensure that some of those guardrails and IAM policies are uh, are limited for people to access, actually access some of the uh, those services that we don't want them to access. So this is what we call as uh, the, the uh, continuous deployment of our um, um, security guardrails and architectural guardrails. Uh, given that this is actually in a GitHub repository, this is the source of truth. So we essentially can actually continuously improve it as well. So as new services come in, as new uh, learnings around what services that we need to put controls around or what uh, what um, IAM actions that we need to put control around, we continuously improve it and deploy it across all the accounts as well. So that 
that I kind of saw this is one of the important things. Before doing it, I've also seen other organizations where there, there is AWS multi-constraint. It seems to be a common stuff now, right? So you, when you go to cloud, particularly with AWS, multi-account is a common stuff. What, what I also saw is that, well, um, generally the DevOps team kind of creates an account and actually handed it so to the team. Uh, as part of creating the account, they probably put in some some guardrails, and these guardrails are either codified sometimes rarely, or sometimes just click click ops through, right? Now, when you give it to the development team, and actually the development team is kind of developing applications into it, and the SecOps team wants to improve the guardrails around it, well, now they are at the mercy of the development team to actually go and do that. And the development team wouldn't have any priority on that. They would be always focused on their future development and delivering the values for it. And so that, that kind of puts attention. So, so to overcome it is essentially what we um, build this uh, uh, state machine model based on AWS landing zone to ensure that there is a continuous deployment. So that puts, uh, to be honest, that's put me at risk because I, I'm, I'm comfortable most of the time that uh, there is not a wrong <laughs> uh, subnet that's open to internet or a wrong VPC that's open to internet and the, the, all the requests are coming through a known set of load balancers or the other or the, or the gateway endpoints. At the same time with the security, right? They know very clearly that there is uh, there are a few things that just cannot happen because our service control policies are so strong to avoid it. So it puts me at risk as an head of architecture that people are taking the right choices all the time, and and we are confident that it actually uh, is hard to take a wrong choice within my development team as well, and from the security team that some of those things just is not possible within our. Uh, deployment model architecture model. So, so that's how we moved left from from a, from an overall architectural guardrail perspective. Other than, in addition to that, right, so we also have um, the application uh, level security, uh, application level dashboards around. We use Sneak, uh, Sneak probably some of you might be familiar with, uh, to continuously scan our repositories and images to actually understand what are the vulnerabilities in it, and that serves as a dashboard in terms of. Uh, how the how the patching you know, how the application uh, uh, risks are looking looking like, and, and we also ensure that uh, as part of our continuous deployment, we scan our repos, scan our code to, before deploying it to ensure um, ensure yeah. So we are actually continuously uh, compliant, like what Vinky was talking about earlier. You know, on that as well, I think if we talk about shifting left on security, it's one of the things that's really important is actually just simply defining your strategy. So, you know, what do you actually want to shift left on? I hear big blanket statements from organizations going, want to shift left, but that's really not clear on what that actually means. And, you know, talking about that shared ownership, who's going to be doing what in that? Um, where do you intend to go with the strategy on security? Um, instead of what does that shift left actually mean to your organization? Who is going to own what to and sorry who is going to own what and who's going, going to do what to make sure that it can be delivered and enabled within the organization i think um defining that early on and having a, a strategy around that's really important but also in the you know in the mindset of devops don't try and get that perfect you're never going to be able to gold plate it from the get-go so focus on i think it was tim's point earlier focus on continuous improvement focus on Let's let's draw a line in the sand. This is what we're going to try working. I'll try doing, and then work with that. Work back with that. Try and implement that. Does that not work? Do we need to build a feedback loop? We tried this. Okay, and go through that process a couple of times. I think the other thing that's important as well is understanding how software is actually created in your organization. So how and where the code is made is is made and delivered. Because um, you need to know where you're going to be shifting left to. 
as well. So when we're going to shift left, what are the gaps that are in that team? Do we need to upskill these particular teams um, to make sure they've got the knowledge or they've got the tools or processes in, in place, right? Um, they're kind of the two two key things I think are really important. And that's a bit more zoomed out from um, from uh, the response that was just given, but I think it's I think it's important to start at that level and go, well, we need to know people to know what it means. I mean, I've worked at orgs where they've gone, for example, cloud first, and people are going, what does it actually mean? We have multiple clouds, or in the interest of security, um, shift left. Well, what does that mean? Well, we actually don't know what it means. It's just a blanket kind of statement that we're being told to do, but no one knows actually how to do it because there's no strategy underpinning what that actually is. Yeah, I just want to build, sorry, Tim, I just want to build on that as well. Obviously, Ben's mentioned a feedback loop and a strategy. What I was going to say before he jumped in, um, you know, we can shift left for security, but at what point in time, you know, do you actually see the rewards or how do you know it's working? You know, how long does it take to see that it's actually being beneficial for shifting left or in implementing security? I know that usually traditionally everyone implements security when something breaks. Um, and I've been on, you know, the nice hand of finding those resources for people when everything's in chaos mode. But at what stage or is there a process that everyone follows to actually ensure that the shifting left for security and implementing it at the beginning is actually beneficial to the platform? You know, does anyone have a a stage or a process, the process that they follow or something like that that they can share as well? I, I think you answered the question partly as well when you said that, uh, Lucky. So so chaos is a good indicator, right? So when your team is in chaos, you continuously try to see how we could define what left means and see how we could shift left, right? Once there is an organization of information and the security teams are clear about what we are doing, what is being deployed and what is their posture and what are the risks around it, well, now they, you actually have an opportunity to relax and rest a bit, right? So so that's that's the kind of uh, thing that I go with. Uh, but you know what, to be starting, I mean, like what uh, Ben was talking about, absolutely right, you can't get this perfect right away as a starting point. Um, so what what we started with, particularly in PageApp, is that we started with just a Excel sheet, a sheet that is telling about what are the different criteria about a platform health of a system would look like, and that includes a security posture of it, and put, put a list of it, have your systems in the in, in the columns and try to see how you could actually put some measures around each of them, right? So as much as try to see how we could leverage packs to put that put that in place and have an overall platform health score for each of the systems that are actually there, right? Now that platform health score would actually be an indicator for you to actually say, well, now how do I move this? What are the questions to move? So how do I en en encourage my systems to and teams to actually be um, aware of this information and then try to see how we could move this over time right so i think that's essentially what we start with and over time the 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 the, the idea should be to see how we could actually make the overall list and more factual information that can be automated etc so we are going through the journey ourselves but yeah so i think that's one way of dealing with it i just add, add a little bit to that i think really in the same kind of vein like i think Establishing like clear metrics to track against and then constantly reporting against those metrics and really reinforcing that um, that continuous feedback. So we've seen customers who, you know, go in with a cloud native environment, you know, as an example, they say, well, we're going to move patching into the Amy build and the application teams are going to be responsible for patching and they're going to be able to deploy quickly. And there's like a, an agreement between the application team and the security team that says, hey, you're going to uh, take over patching. The application team's like, yeah, I'm going to take over patching. And we come back a year later and things haven't been patched for a year. And the security team is just like white, like the, the risk is through the roof. 
um, and they've got no ability now to patch it. They have to go and try and prioritize it through the application teams. And this is where, like, you know, these kind of like DevOps and DevSecOps processes, it's about um, a constantly, constant movement forward, but reinforcing and having the metrics. So in that example, like if they were constantly looking at the metrics, they, they had that strong feedback loop, they wouldn't get to that position. So part of when we talk about it, it's like infrastructure and security teams moving to that product mindset. So not being like, I'm, I'm going to take a ticket, I'm going to do a project, I'm going to come and I'm going to leave. That That is like the old style. The new style requires that I'm providing the service, I'm providing a product to the organization. We have a, a way that we work together, the way we collaborate and the way we feedback. And organizations that that have that kind of mind shift and that cultural mind shift really benefit from these type of processes. They move fast. Uh, they have a, a really dynamic environment. Organizations that are treated like, I said, project, I'm going to do it once. I'm going to say I'm going to do metrics and I'm going to look at them a year later. Um, are the ones that really struggle to get the momentum behind uh, from the side of things that you, you need to build to make these things effective. Yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely. And I think uh, if we if we put the lens of business again against the security baselining, uh, is is that different organizations in different industries or even uh, the different structure in organization will lead to different uh, preference. And essentially, because of the legislations and, and risk posture, the, the tolerance of different risks are different. Uh, I mean, it is very various, I mean, across different organizations, such as, you know, federal government projects uh, versus financial services versus healthcare. Uh, they may have different threat uh, modeling, and you know there are different different types of risks against uh, data. So, and and when I talk about the risks against workload of data, because you always have to consider data classification, like what kind of data you try to secure. At the end of the day, all workloads, applications, etc., are handling communications with our end user. And what kind of data is being transmitted, processed, and stored and disposed uh, will be looked at. So I think that one is probably the overarching thing we need to consider when we try to ship things to the left. For example, if we are in healthcare industry, the personal uh, sensitive information regarding your health uh, is, is paramount. And probably if you're working on a, a government project, then you know you have to consider uh, state-sponsored actors and, you know, insider risks. And you're, if you're running a global business, say if you're a product company and you're dealing with European countries, you have to consider GDPR. And now, uh, you know, with the Ukraine war, you have to consider export control and sanctions and things like that because it's really complex. That landscape is complex. So I think the the educational piece uh, for for developer, they often ask why, like, why do you make my life so, so difficult? And there's always a good reason to do so sometimes. And maybe the, that reason is like 10,000 feet high. And what you're seeing is actually on the ground. We, we do need to build things. We do need to build controls. Uh, but I think they don't really come together nicely, but I would like to marry business with, with technology. And then, you know, many of our the firms that we're working 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 for actually can help because either you have the lack of skill uh, in building something, you know, we can augment the engineering team. If you don't have good developers with security awareness, we can supply the AppSec engineer. Or if you don't 
know how to run a training, uh, consultancies can definitely help. Or if you lack of business uh, insights about how to be complying globally, and that's another another thing, uh, different types of consultancy can help. So I think they, as I said, they don't really come nicely hand in hand, but it's really important to, to get on board. Yeah, and then I'll just pivot to the final question, uh, which is to Ben. So what organizational structures or features are required to enable tech scalability? Uh, so in there, since we're talking about speed, security and scalability, how do we achieve all and is it even possible to achieve all? You know, broad, broad question, very, very broad, broad question. Um, I think scaling technology, in my view, it really comes down to culture, people and process. I think more more importantly than the tech. And I think if we go and there's a few points that I'll probably point uh, I'll talk about. So I think first things first is having a real clear tech vision and a rather clear vision and roadmap. And that is crystal clear for your whole organization. Um, I think your whole org should really be on the same page with where every, where the business is going and where they want to take it. Um, and the, the vision itself should really focus on including the specific goals around the growth and customer acquisition and retention that they want to achieve. I think once you've got that, you can in, it, this helps senior leaders really drive out what the technical vision is for the organization um, and build a technical roadmap that will enable the organization to achieve their vision. The technical roadmap itself um, really then will include all the various features, function enhancements that are planned to be delivered over the next few years. And if you don't have a clear tech vision and roadmap in place, uh, place I kind of feel that the tech scalability is very hard to achieve, right? The, tech vision, the technical vision and that roadmap will help really guide the entire organization in terms of where they're headed and what technologies they will need to implement and then scale to achieve the business goal, the business, business goals. It won't detail the specific how, in my view, that's kind of up to the teams to decide on how they want to get there. But I think ensuring everyone knows the direction that they are headed and the teams are empowered to deliver will then help an organization really scale up their practices, but also scale up their technical, their tech, their technology in the organization as well. The second point is implementing best practice, right? I think adopting best practices from the get-go really paves the paves the way for quite a smooth ride as your organization scales and the techno and that they want to scale the technology that supports it. Right? Many organizations like to cut cut corners early on to save time and money, but as the business scales and as you need to scale the technology to support that scale of the business you'll start to feel the pain of that very quickly as you're faced with quite a large amount of technical debt that needs to be fixed. So when you when your organization is now focusing on fixing the technical debt, it really takes the it takes them away from focusing on how they can scale the technology in use to meet the company's vision as they're focusing on really putting out spot fires and removing that technical debt, right? I like to think of if you can implement best practice from the get-go, it really makes scaling up the technology more around like slowly turning up a volume knob as opposed to maybe dragging a car up a hill with a piece of string. Right. So that's the analogy that I generally like to use. You want that smooth, you want it to be nice and smooth. You don't want to be like everyone's pushing and making it really challenging for that. I think, and we've talked a bit about this as well. I think the next piece is really developing and maintaining a culture of learning and risk taking. Right? Teams that are encouraged to try new things tend to become more experimental in nature. Not even tend, they do become more experimental in nature. Um, this really, in my view, it kind of means that they'll start to learn what works and equally as important what does not work. And then they become, they feel more comfortable in taking advantage of newer, newer technologies or newer, newer processes or newer whatever to really help the business scale and then help the technology scale as well, right? 
the cult, a culture of learning and risk-taking really will also enable an organization to probably become more resilient to changes in technology and keep up with the market trends, trends and look at really probably developing the technical skills they need that are in line with the uh, company vision and then the roadmap that's on in place as well. Um, I think as well with the learning and risk-taking and developing that culture, it also helps improve the technical maturity of the organization. Um, which will not just help them in implementing new technologies, but then scaling that up across the organization as well. It brings them in to go, cool, well, we're, we're, we're okay working in this bit of this unknown domain or okay, well, now we've hit, our business has hit a new scale. We're getting millions of requests of thousands now. So we're more open to trying something new. And I think if you're built on that implementing best practices, you know you've got that foundation in there as well that's quite important. Um, and then I think the other point as well is, and we've touched on this as well a few times, is that creating an environment that fosters collaboration and then building those feedback loops, right? The sharing of knowledge and providing feedback across your organization is really key to scaling the technology and also the business itself. I've gone into many enterprises where it's really common to have multiple teams that have solved the same problem in a different way. And that really just introduces quite a lot of complexity and confusion on how to do things. Like what's the right way to go about doing something? I think if you can build these structures into your organization where people are encouraged and empowered to share their ideas and solutions, it makes it easier for a business to scale their technology as they can really use better, they can use their resources better and more efficiently and they can solve actual problems that are preventing it from scaling, uh, scaling the technology and scaling the people as opposed to just reinventing the same solution over. So making sure you set up, set up those, uh, those, those structures in place, I think are really, really important as well. So, so one one point that I would like to add, right? So, well, it's I think sometimes what we got to be mindful. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not talking about large enterprises where organization structural changes are going to be costly and and bigger to do, but for smaller organizations like product development organizations, 200, 300 people organizations, it's it's I think the, it is important to be in, intentional in what your organization structure is optimizing for and what it is actually mitigating it for, right? So you can't definitely optimize your organization structure for everything, right? For example, one organization might be optimizing for faster product development scale and, and putting more products in front of our customer. Another organization, uh, a product development organization, like if, if they've been in the business for a long time, they actually have some technical tips, et cetera. So they need to ensure that their technical tips are taken care of, the security baselining is improved, they're probably going through a cloud migration. So it's okay from time to time to actually optimize your organization structure uh, to be a bit more intentional in what we want to be achieving in one to two years time, two to three years time, right? So I think that's something that I thought I'll actually, I think Ben made some fantastic points around that subject, but I thought I'll just add, add, add these two things on top of it. Yeah, I I Sorry, go on, Tim. Uh, I disagree. I think you made some really great points there. I think one thing we're kind of talking about here is um, I think like understanding your organizers, organization's capability and maturity. Um, often we, we work to organizations and they want to, you know, they're talking about, you know, the, the top end of the maturity curve, adopting, you know, massive amounts of microservices. And when you start to work with them, they're actually got like a couple of really monolithic uh, line of applications, or, or they, you know, haven't done anything in cloud and they're suddenly talking about moving everything to Fargate or running Kubernetes clusters. So I think like um, scaling like with your organization's maturity and like as you introduce capability, like going along that journey um, is important. So uh, when we talk to customers, it's like we know where you want to get to, but let's talk about where you are 
And let's talk about like logical steps that is going to allow you to move move in a direction that's going to get you there, enable your teams and your culture to move in the same direction, but also show success and show that you, you are actually um, you're getting the benefit from those new processes rather than going so far that it's just it's too far to, to reach and you miss and then you actually bring like a, an underlying culture of, oh, this is not possible. This is like, you know, cloud is not the right solution. DevOps is not the right solution. And so I think maturity and understanding where you are as an organization and then just stepping through it, it lets you scale and mature um, in, in the bit of speed. And then you can kind of build momentum as you go. I think respecting, um, respecting that DevOps uh, maturity process and the, that path to maturity is really important. You know, I've worked with clients where they go, we want, they want to be Spotify on day two. Right. They want to get there straight away. Um, so building, respecting the process and going, do you know what? Well, when we're talking DevOps transformation or whatever sort of digital transformation, we're actually talking a multi-year journey. It's not something that we're going to probably see benefit on and meet like large benefit that we want to see in the next quarter. For example, we'll see some, but you know, we want to, we, we're not going to see everything. And I think that's really important as well. And I do tell that to a lot of my clients. It's about respecting the journey and making sure that you're on this for the long haul because Google, Spotify, Amazon, they didn't become the way they are overnight. It's been a multi, multi-year journey. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly my point as well, right? So essentially, we're making a, a, an organization structure similar to Spotify or Google or, or Facebook is not going to get you there right away. And then, so essentially, trying to understand, well, like what team was highlighting, what's your next logical step? And what does a team constitution would look like for that particular setup? And how do you organize yourself in the, to that fashion so that you could take it as a step and, and eventually get there? Yeah, I think I've seen, I mean, when I was consulting, I've seen several organizations trying to get into the Spotify model or, or a Facebook model and, 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 and only regret that what did not work for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you, when you pull people, process, technology, uh, three things together is, I would say, probably process will have to be dictated by the other two. A, what kind of team you have, or even what kind of team you will have that, you know, which will probably change your, your decision-making process for recruitment and, and talent retaining, or, you know, compensation, those kind of things. And number two, technology is now a supply chain. Uh, you won't build everything yourself, and there's always a buy versus build thing, and including all the security, tools and instrumentations that you're going to use. And then finally, you land down the process because with the people that you have, including the culture that you've built, plus whatever technology that you, you either forced to use or you, you know, you pick and choose, then you, you land on a customized process, which will work best for your organization. Yeah, 100% agree. Like it's the best practices with context. And the context is what gives you the outcome and the best practices lets you know where you want to go and how to get there. Okay. And then I guess in yeah. terms of myself, just to get out there, we've got three pillars, speed, security, and scalability. Um, being non-technical, you can shoot me down if you want. Is there any point in time where security shouldn't be one of those focuses? You know, if you had to choose two and you could erase one, is there any sort of scenario where security wouldn't be a focus? Yeah, I think, I mean, as, as much as you call them as three pillars, right? So the three pillars do not always have equal weight all the time, right? So one pillar weighs one more over another pillar from time to time. It depends upon the organization context and where the, the level of maturity that they are. So especially when you're actually just going through a large scale of um, 
transformation, well, security, I and mean, some of these pillars become equally important, right? So, but then once you actually go into a BAU and operational mode, trying to develop either uh, deliver more product or scale your customers, then um, well, some of those pillars would actually play more versus uh, security. So I think there is yeah. definitely a time in our journey where we actually had security on the top and, and current mm -hmm. relatively low now at the moment. Yeah, priorities always change. And I think the, these things are uh, most mostly impacted by your business. For example, your startup, you're, you, you're hungry for funding. You want to show your investors that you're growing fast, the business model works. You need to show them uh, the velocity that you can get things uh, achieved in, in, a, in a very reasonable time frame, and you, you will snap a large market share. At that time, I would say you probably put security second or even third because it's a life and death. If the business doesn't does not survive, there's no more security controls being being built and, and invested. But if you go public, uh, you know the regulators will put a lot of security lens on you, compliance, and that then that's probably the right uh, time you uh, secure funding and budget to make sure that you absolutely are on the money. So that I think that this is more of a, I would, to me, this is a business, really the business priority rather than technical priority. Cool. So just depending on the life cycle of the business will be the focal point, whether or not you focus on speed, security, scalability, or all three. Nice. Awesome. And, all right. and I've, I've heard a joke, uh, and yes. maybe it's only a joke. Uh, some, I think a tech startup said, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to secure our website anymore with DDoS attack. Like we're not against DDoS at all because the money we spend on security uh, software to defend DDoS is is actually more greater than the revenue loss. That you you know what I mean? Like I just let let the DDoS come and go, and that's fine. It's probably cheaper than uh, put all the software uh, guardrails in place. It's it's only a joke. I don't I don't necessarily hundred percent agree, but that shows you how ridiculous. Sometimes the security controls can become. At the end of the day, run, you're running a business. You're run, not running a security show or security lab. Yeah, awesome. Well, then that will complete us for today. Um, so thank you all for attending. Uh, appreciate everyone's time.